This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. This is Nancy with Stories of Win, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Maria Dio, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Kansas State University. Thank you so much for, for letting me interview you today, Maria. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, so we always like starting by asking the people we interview, the women we interview, how did you first become interested in studying the brain? How did that happen for you? Um, gosh, I think the first time I remember I was really fascinated with the brain was in eighth grade biology class, and we were dissecting uh, fetal pigs. And the instructions were to, you know, cut open the chest cavity and the ab abdominal cavity. Um, and after I'd finished all that, I was like, I really want to see what's inside the skull, what's inside the head. So on my own, I just started, you know, di dissecting that out. And I saw the brain and I was like, wow, this is so cool. Look at this. Um, and I think from then on, I, I always knew I wanted to do something related to the brain. Um, and then when I went to college, I saw that there was this really cool interdisciplinary program um, when I went to Emory for undergrad. And it combined psychology, anthropology and biology into this major called neuroscience and behavioral biology. Um, oh, wow. Anthropology classes. Yeah. So that was really awesome. And I that's it. Ever since then, I've you know, that's where it all started. <laughs> that's really cool. So then, you know, a dissecting a pig got you interested in the brain was that part of the dissection to like get the brain out or was that you being like you know go coloring off the lines and like going beyond exactly yeah it was just me being curious and doing my own thing um it wasn't part of the assignment at all and I was just like oh I want to do this this is really cool so <laughs> that's awesome and so once you once you were at Emory majoring in this like interdisciplinary neuroscience uh program Um, did you knew that you wanted to do research? Was that something that from the eighth grade you knew or do you just wanted to study the brain? When I first started um, in undergrad, I wasn't sure. Um, and I knew a lot of, of my classmates were all pre-med majors. Um, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to do pre-med or something else. Um, but after I was in college for a while, I didn't really like the vibe that the pre-med major had with me. Um, so I just kind of stuck to, you know, focusing on neuroscience itself and just going, trying to see, you know, where would that take me? Um, and then kind of realizing along the way that, you know, if you don't go to med school, you know, and you want to stay in academia, you know, most people take the graduate route and, and go to graduate school for something. Um, and after, I think it was in my junior year, um, I found this opportunity to work in a research lab, um, during the summer. Um, one of those, and that summer... was your first research experience. Yeah. Yeah. So the first research experience I had was working in a psychology lab with, uh, that did human work on learning and memory. Um, and I remember just having so many questions about, you know, what parts of the brain, um, are, you know, needed for forming memories and, and, you know, remembering things. And I remember the graduate students saying, well, we actually don't know everything. Uh, we think it's this, we think it's that. 
Um, but that first experience, I didn't really get to do a lot of hands-on work. It was more like, here's some data we've collected and put it on a poster and present it uh, and work oh, with wow. the grad, work with the grad student on that. So it was, it was, you know, I didn't get to actually do any experiments. It was stuff they had already collected and probably because it was just a you know, quick summer research thing. Um, but after that, I found a research opportunity in a monkey lab at the Yerkes Primate Center there. Um, and they were looking at sex differences and cognitive aging. And they looked at male monkeys, female monkeys. This was in Dr. Jim Herndon's lab. And he also had uh, a guest researcher or a visiting researcher there um, named Agnes LaCruz, who I still talk with. Um, and so she, I worked with her a lot and I got to work with the monkeys. I got to take them out of their cages and use this really cool um, testing apparatus called the Wisconsin General Testing Apparatus, which is kind of related to the Wisconsin hard sorting test that they use in humans. And so basically you have different rules and then monkeys have to figure out what the rule is. So one of the rules was whenever a new object appears, that's the one you take. And then there's a treat underneath so that you present them with a, uh, one object and then wait a certain amount of time and you can vary the time delay and then present that same object with a new object. And they learn to, to take the new object to get the treat. And then they have another version where it's a spatial delay task where you have different discs that look all the same and the animal has to remember which where the new disc hap, you know, is placed after each trial. Um, and I just remember thinking how awesome it was watching this, you know, monkey learning these rules and remembering where everything was. And I remember there was one female uh, monkey we had, she was pretty old and she could remember all of the discs. And I think there were like 16, it was an array of 16 discs. And she had the best memory of all of them. Uh, were the discs the different objects? No, they were all the same. So they just had to remember the location when a new disc appeared and remember keeping their memory where the older discs were. Um, and then you just... Oh, so all the objects were identical, but the locations, like if you put it in a new spot, that's that's what they need to remember. Yeah, that was one of the tests. And then another kind of test was a visual object recognition test where you have, you know, they have to find the new object, but it's only two out of two objects. And your job as an undergrad was to arrange the objects or like set up the experiments. So you were really working closely with the monkeys. Yeah, yeah. It was really fun. And then there were also some monkeys that were very like, like they were just really excited or hyper and they would like try to grab the toy and we had to put strings on the to on the object so they couldn't grab them. <laughs> and sometimes like the, the string would break and they would keep the toy in their cage and um, I was always a little anxious about trying to get the toy out of their cage when I put them when I put them back in their home cage. Um, but it was just really fun working with them and seeing all their different personalities. Um, and yeah, just working with them all the time. Um, so then that was my experience for undergrad. So I stayed in that lab for two years. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the other thing we got to do was um, MRI. So we looked at structural differences across male and female monkeys and old and old. Um, young and old monkeys as well. And I ended up getting on a paper for that. So that was really cool. Um, so I knew I was really interested in the brain at that point. And I had started thinking about, um, you know, research questions on language evolution and the origins of language and how does that come about and communication. And um, I wanted to go into that area, but I wasn't sure if I was ready for graduate school. And honestly, I didn't know if I would do well. I had some some sort of, you know, imposter syndrome type stuff where I was like, I don't know if I would be good enough to get into grad school or if I would, you know, succeed in grad school. 
So I, you know, thought for a while and then I realized they have these postback programs um, that you can apply for where it's kind of a, a middle step between undergrad and grad school and you can work in a lab for a year or two. They let you take some classes if you are, you know, if you need different classes to make your um, graduate application more competitive. And they also pay for you to take the GRE or, you know, do other things like that and go to conferences to really like make yourself competitive and see if, you, if this is really something you want to do. So I went to Virginia Tech for that um, post-bac program for two years. And I worked in another psychology lab um, in Dr. Robin Paniton's lab. And she worked with infants um, instead of monkeys or any other animals. So I was like, well, this will be a little different. We'll see how this goes. We'll see if I like it or not, because I had never really worked with infants before. Um, and the research questions were really interesting. We were looking at language development and um, specifically how um, infants learn differences in language accent. So there's actually a certain time point in your development where um, you can identify differences in different um, aspects of language accent, but after a certain point, you kind of generalize that. As an infant, yes. they pick it up. Yeah. And then they generalize. Like, I guess we learn to not focus on the accent really early. Right. We're, when we're really young, we can, we can really identify those differences. But as we get older, um, you may be less attentive to hearing, you know, like an Australian accent versus uh, an American accent. It kind of, you know, you see those sounds as similar if they're talking about the same kind of, you know, information or something like that. Um, so that was really fun. I really enjoyed it there, but I knew that I wanted to do something more related to the brain. So, you know, because obviously with humans and infants, you can't, you know, put electrodes in their brain. You can do certain things like EEG and stuff. Uh, but I knew I wanted to go back to the animal model um, and work with monkeys again because I was just so fascinated with with working with them. So, um, but I did really well in that post back program and I was able to get into graduate school. Actually, the first round I applied, I didn't get in anywhere, and so I stayed in the program another year. Were you in the post back program while you applied? Yeah. So mm -hmm. I started the post back program in the summer after I graduated, and then um, applied that fall. Didn't get in into any places. And then the following year I applied, I think to nine schools and I got into like six of them. I got, I remember getting six offers. So I was really excited about that. And I decided to go work with um, Dr. Liz Romansky in, um, at the university of Rochester. And so she studies um, audiovisual integration of faces and vocalizations in rhesus monkeys. And she records in ventral prefrontal cortex. So I thought this is perfect. She studies social communication. She records neurons in prefrontal cortex. Um, this is exactly what I want to do. So um, I started working in her lab and I was there for... So you went straight to her lab. It, it was not a rotation. I did do rotations, but I remember um, my first rotation was in a different lab. I worked with mice um, looking at um, auditory processing. And they had this mouse model of hearing loss. So as the animals aged, their hearing would, de would decline. And so they wanted to characterize um, the neural activity in the inferior colliculus to see how that decline progressed. So um, it was a very um, straightforward approach where they had anesthetized mice. They put um, an acute probe into the inferior colliculus, and then they just played 
different sounds to the animals, like sweeps and pure tones and white noise and mm. different frequencies. So it was more auditory processing, less social. Yeah. It was really like, you know, just the auditory system in a, at a very basic level, at a more basic level. Um, but I really liked that. It was um, someone, you know, had set the mouse up and everything. And I sat there and ran the program and stuff. And then I got to analyze the data and present the poster. And I was really excited about that. Um, and then I think my second rotation was with um, Liz. Because um, I think I remember the first semester I was there, she was not available to take a rotation student. So I waited until the spring. Um, and then that's when I got to work with the monkeys there. And I really enjoyed it. And I knew I wanted to be there. And then um, the third rotation was um, kind of a side project to her research lab, working in Dave Kornack's lab, doing some immunohistochemistry um, of monkey tissue. So that kind of actually wow. contributed to uh, my thesis work. Um, so that was really nice. But I, yeah, I really enjoyed working with the monkeys there. And the project that I had was really interesting to me. Um, but as the years progressed, um, I started realizing I didn't want to work with monkeys anymore. So, uh, you invest a lot of time and energy into only one or two animals. And if anything were to happen to them, um, you know, half of your project would be lost. Um, and I also knew, um, going forward that I wanted to mentor undergraduates and it was very difficult to have a monkey lab and be able to mentor undergraduates. Because usually when you have a, a primate lab, you want to have, um, most of them have postdocs or graduate students, and you have to invest a lot of time in those trainees um, to you know, get comfortable with the animals and the animals develop a trust with the researcher and that kind of thing. Um, so it's very rare that you would have you know, undergraduates um, committed for that long to work in a, in a primate lab. Yeah, it was incredibly rare that you were an undergrad that worked with monkeys. I had never heard that. So that was very, very rare. Before we move on to uh, past graduate school, in a few sentences, what was your, your research uh, about your thesis? And you know, what, what, what did you do? What did you find? Yeah, so I was interested in emotional aspects of um, social communication. And there's already been a characterization of the different vocalizations um, that rhesus macaques use to communicate with other people and their other animals in their colony. Um, so I was interested in how ventral prefrontal neurons encode um, emotional expression and caller identity in these vocalizations. So in, in the Romansky lab, we have this um, delayed non-match to, to sample task that we train our monkeys in where they learn, they have to fixate on the screen and they look at an image. Sometimes that image is paired with a sound. And for the non-match to sample task, they have to press a button to get a juice reward whenever a different um, stimulus comes on the screen. So you could present the animal with a coo face and a coo voice. So a coo is a vocalization that's like an affiliative call. Um, it's a positive, you know, has a positive um, emotional valence to it um, versus something like an aggressive bark um, that you can contrast with that. So I would present something like a coo face and a coo vocalization on the screen and through the speakers. And then a non-match could be a different identity monkey making the same kind of call, a coo call. Um, so because they're different, the animal would press the button and get a juice reward, and we would record the response in ventral prefrontal cortex. The other um, kinds of uh, switches in this task would be if we presented um, one type of animal that did the coo 
the coup vocalization in that same animal doing a different vocalization, an aggressive vocalization, for example. So in that trial, it would be a, an expression change that would occur, whereas in the other trial type, it would be an identity change that would occur. So we'd have these different trial types where the animal would detect an identity change or an expression change. And then we would look at the activity in ventral prefrontal cortex. And overall, what we found was that different groups of neurons um, would change their firing rate based on whether they saw a coup face and voice or an aggressive face or voice, or if there was an identity switch or um, an emotional expression switch. And were these? And then we also looked at, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that, like, I was wondering if there were cells that would uh, code for identity or emotion, regardless of the modality, right? Because you had either sounds or faces. In our test, or were they we kept those, modality specific? That, in those, in our, in our test, we kept all of those constants. So there would always be a face, a visual, you know, static face and a, a vocalization um, presented each time. So we didn't, for those specific neurons. Oh, they were yeah, we, co-presented. Yes. They were co-presented. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay, I see. But there have been previous studies looking at, you know, if, if um, does a ventral prefrontal neuron encode a visual stimulus or an auditory stimulus, or if it's an audiovisual stimulus, how does the activity change? Um, and there are differences there that we, we see different prefrontal neurons encoding multisensory information versus audio, audio only or video only. Right. So, and then the other, the last aspect that we looked at um, in this study was um, we would do um, retrograde injections of um, different kinds of tracers like fast blue or um, floor ruby, et cetera, and look at projections that were going to ventral prefrontal. So we do retrograde tracers and look at cells labeled in the temporal lobe that would also process auditory information or visual information that project to ventral prefrontal to see where is the information, what, what information is the ventral prefrontal cortex receiving from these different areas so that it can integrate this information. Okay, so then your project had part physiology and part anatomy, like characterizing um, how, you know, the function of the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex for multisensory, uh, you know, I guess, social communication, and then also what are the pathways that exist for, for that information to get there. So then, uh, you know, I guess you're saying that you were realizing that for your goals of training students, um, non-human primates were not the best or the easiest, and that you recognize the challenges with non-human primate research with like, it's impossible to do high volume. Um, so, so then at that junction of the end of graduate school, what, what were you thinking and what choices did you make for, for your postdoctoral training? So I, at that point I realized, you know, this is a lot of work. I don't know if I see myself, uh, you know, having a monkey lab of my own, um, it was, it just seems so challenging. And then on top of that, there were only so many institutions that had resources, um, to, you know, house and, and, and handle that kind of research that I thought it might be a better route to switch to a different animal model. Um, so I decided to look at, um, postdoc labs that would be working with rats, um, and also looking at, um, emotion regulation or, um, 
those kinds of things. And then also in, in addition to that, instead of just looking at one specific area of the brain, I was more interested in, you know, networks and circuits, you know, how, how does information um, get relayed in the brain? You know, what areas, obviously there's more than one brain area that's important for a given behavior. You know, it's important to look at the whole circuit to see how that behavior is, is, you know, established and governed by the brain. So um, my um, PhD advisor, Liz recommended Greg Cork um, because he also um, got some training from the Ledoux lab. They didn't overlap in time, but they knew of each other. Um, so she recommended him. And um, I was also thinking, you know, postdoc is only for a few years. It would be nice to go somewhere uh, very different. So I applied to some labs that were all over the world. I applied to a research lab in Australia, um, some labs in Europe, um, and then also Greg's lab in Puerto Rico. And I remember the first time I emailed him, um, he didn't respond and I was kind of sad. Um, and Liz just said, you know, just keep, you know, keep emailing him. I can email him too, if he doesn't respond. And then he finally, you know, I think after my second, um, attempt, he wrote back and said, oh yeah, you know, come on and, and come by and give a talk. And, um, so I was really excited about that. And, um, my husband went with me, um, actually I think at the time he was, we, we, we weren't married yet. We were planning to get married. So we were engaged. Um, so he came to, uh, and they put us up in this really nice hotel, the Caribe Hilton in Condado. And, um, I was like, oh, wow, this is so cool. And then right before we left, um, Greg said, oh, I won't be there. I have to, um, I'm, I'm going to Israel or something to give a talk somewhere, you know, very exotic. And so he wasn't going to be there on your <laughs> job talk no. on like your interview. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He's like, but you'll be fine. You know, I, my grad students are there. My postdocs are there. Um, you know, you'll give a talk to them and the whole lab and, the, you know, they'll show you everything. And I was like, okay. Um, so I got there and, you know, everyone in the lab was just so warm and so welcoming. Um, it was really like, you know, very different from going to, um, other labs that I had been, I had, you know, worked in or been to in the United States. And even, um, I, I remember going to a lab in Germany and it was just being like, it was like night and day from that lab in Germany to this lab, um, in Puerto Rico. Um, <laughs> I remember in Germany, like everyone was just very serious and like, they just talked about work and, um, a very, like, I was kind of just getting passed around in that interview. And I remember no one even offered to take me to lunch or give me coffee or anything. And I was like this, I don't like this place, <laughs> which was very different in the cork lab. You know, they were like, Oh, we're so glad you're here. Let me tell you about my work. This is what we're working on now. And oh, let's go and get some coffee and talk more. And, um, they were just very warm and very excited about their research. Um, and it was just, it was like a breath of fresh air. I was like, wow, this place is great. You know, I think I, I think I belong here. I think this is the right place. And, um, they were just so easy to talk to. And when I showed them, you know, my PhD work, they were very excited and uh, asking lots of questions. Um, and they were very excited that I knew electrophysiology because I think they were trying at the time to record neurons in IL and they were just having so much trouble trying to get cells in IL. Um, so for those that don't know, IL is infralimbic cortex, right? Right. Part of the prefrontal cortex right. in the road. Yeah. So, um, so I, you know, we came back home. Um, oh, and then some other fun things was that after my talk, they were like, oh, we should take you to the roof. Um, have you ever been to the roof up there, Nancy? 
<laughs> yes, I know that, Ruth, yeah. So like, oh, we, should, we need to take you up there. There's a really nice view of the uh, Puerto Rico and San Juan. Let's go up there. Um, and they were just so, everything was so fun and um, warm and energetic. Um, and then they were- very- So you gravitated with the environment yes. and and the group. Yeah, yeah. They were just, it was just so nice to, to, to be a part of that, even for those um, short few days that I was there. And Every morning, Calvin would come and get me, um, pick me up from the hotel and take me to the lab and show me around. And he it was very, very nice and even uh, drove us all the way um, to that uh, to the place where that has like the best pork sausages um, in the middle of the island. I can't remember the name, but it's very, very good. And then also the ice cream place down there, too. Um, so he was just like very excited to show us all the cool things in Puerto Rico. And um, yeah, it was it was great. So I was. After that, I came home. I was like, gosh, I really hope, you know, I get to go work in that lab. Um, and finally, you know, Greg wrote back and said, oh, everyone really loved you. It sounds like you would be a great fit. So you should come. Um, and then, the, you know, after that, I was just so excited. So I hurried up and finished my PhD work. And I also got married at the same time. So I think I got married in August of that year. I defended uh, my PhD work in November and then we moved there in December. So it was just all big whirlwind. Um, going from Rochester, New York to um, sunny, hot Puerto Rico. Um, so that was really great. I enjoyed that a lot. How was the adjustment, that adjustment of going from, from, from monkeys to rats? Um, it was a, some parts of it were unexpected. So in my mind, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be way easier. You know, like it's not this big giant monkey that I have to deal with. You know, I have these little rats and there's lots of them and, you know, you know, things will go quick. Um, but I had to learn a lot. Uh, I had to learn stereotaxic surgeries in, in the rat. I had to learn how, you know, how to do opto. I had to, you know, designing the experiments were much different, um, compared to the experiments I was doing in the monkeys. So it was a lot of things I had to get used to and doing infusions and all that stuff. It was just all very different. Um, so it took a while, Um, and so there was a, there was a bit of a learning curve, a a bit bigger one than I thought. Um, but, but eventually I got there, um, and it, um, I started getting some really new data. So, or some really exciting data. So I was working on the avoidance paradigm that Christian, um, developed. So it's a modification of the auditory fear conditioning paradigm, um, where the animal learns that a tone predicts a shock, and then you can measure freezing behavior, when you just present the tone. Um, and so he wanted to have some sort of safety component where the animal can get away from the shock. Um, so he had the same exact cages that they use for auditory fear conditioning. And then he put a platform in the corner and he, tra- he trained these rats to learn to get on the platform so that they didn't have to endure the foot shock. Um, and I remember one of the first videos I saw of this was he, he kind of just like folded a piece of paper and tried to make a platform that the animal could get away from the grid floor from. And there's this one video that I still show in some of my um, lectures in learning that I do um, as a faculty here, where the animal, one of the one of the rats figured out they can actually move the platform closer to the lever and basically have their cake and eat it too. So they're sitting on the platform and pressing the lever and not getting shocked. And um, it's very funny to show students, they, they get a, a kick out of that. <laughs> And let's describe the task a little better for those that don't have any background in it. Like, so what, 
there's a lever that delivers a reward. There's a tone that plays. And when the tone plays, a shock is coming. So then the rats like have to get on the platform, which means that they cannot eat. Right. Um, so there's that competition uh, aspect of like, am I going to risk it and, and go eat or am I going to stay safe? And that's why it's an active avoidance task. Right, right. And we, we like to say that it's a really good model of clinical avoidance. So if you think about patients in the clinic who have persistent avoidance, they're avoiding, you know, excessively um, because of some, you know, traumatic experience they had. So, for example, if someone has been in a car accident, um, they're going to be very afraid to get in a car, but they need to get in a car if they need to go buy groceries or go, you know, to a doctor's appointment or something like that. They may, you know, try to say things to themselves like, oh, you know, I'll get someone to bring me groceries or, you know, bring me food. I don't need to get in the car or, you know, I can skip this doctor's appointment or something. Um, so they do that excessive avoidance, but it comes at a cost because they can't live their lives as they would want. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we try to use this active avoidance task as a model to understand, you know, how does this behavior come about? What are the areas in the brain that may, you know, malfunction if um, someone develops persistent avoidance. And what what circuit were you studying? Right, you mentioned that you wanted to study circuits and connections. So, um, tell us more about your postdoctoral research. Right. So, at the time when I joined the lab, um, Christian had done some nice work with mucimol inactivations in different areas of the brain, and so he was just um, getting his first paper published on the avoidance task where he um, inactivated um, prelimbic cortex, infralimbic cortex, basolateral amygdala, and the ventral striatum. And a lot of those regions were selected based on the uh, information we know about fear conditioning, such that, you know, PL is important for the expression of that conditioned fear response. Um, and so is the, the amygdala is important for that as well. And also the, the storage of that fear memory. Um, so that was kind of where he started. And then we also knew um, that the infralimbic cortex, the IL, was important for the extinction of freezing. And we knew in this avoidance task that as the animals did this avoidance behavior, um, freezing began to decrease. So it could be possible that maybe um, IL was important for avoidance if their, if their freezing was decreasing. Um, and then I think he also found some other papers showing that ventral striatum is important for other types of avoidance. So he wanted to look at that area as well. Um, so this paper came out, we saw all these different areas were important for avoidance, um, but we didn't know, for number one, we didn't know the activity in those areas, um, how was avoidance being encoded in those areas? And then also how were these areas connected? Which circuits were necessary for the avoidance behavior? So that's kind of where my work came in. And we used an optogenetic approach to um, optogenetically silence different areas of um, the avoidance circuit and then also record specifically from prelimbic to see what the activity was like in prelimbic um, and then use that information to optogenetically inactivate prelimbic um, cortex itself. And then also those prelimbic projections to the basal lateral amygdala and the ventral striatum to see how those projections were guiding avoidance behavior. And I guess shortly, what did you find? Which projectors, what was important? What was guiding the avoidance behavior? Um, so we found that um, in PL, we saw these inhibitory tone responses. So when the tone came on, some cells would decrease their firing rate. 
and other cells in PL would increase their firing rate when the tone came on. So we saw these different inhibitory and excitatory tone responses. And then when we put that together with the optogenetic um, data, we saw that when we um, when we photoactivated or turned on the circuit from PL to VS, that impaired avoidance. And then when we turned off the circuit from PL to the amygdala, that also impaired avoidance. So this kind of told us there were um, bi-directional projections from PL to either the ventral striatum or the basolateral amygdala that were guiding avoidance. So we needed an excitatory projection from PL to the amygdala to promote avoidance. And we needed an, um, an inhibitory projection from PL to the ventral striatum to promote avoidance. Awesome. Um, and tell us about how like um, that work um, led you to the work you do now in the DL lab. Um, so yes, I still, I was very fascinated with this avoidance um, paradigm and I thought it was, was going to be, you know, a, an area of our field that was, you know, going to be more exciting because avoidance was very popular kind of several decades ago um, with the shuttle avoidance task. And then there was kind of a lull in that um, avoidance paradigm. Um, but more recently, more people have been interested in this avoidance um, and so we thought, you know, this active avoidance is, you know, it's, it's starting to get hot. People are interested in it. Um, and so as I kept, you know, doing these experiments and working with the rats in the cork lab, you know, I was thinking about social aspects of this paradigm. So um, what happens if you put two animals together and they learn this task? Would they learn it differently or um, would it be the same? Or, you know, would, would having that other animal promote them to learn avoidance more quickly uh, what kind of information would they get from their partner if they were to learn this paradigm with another animal? Um, so that's kind of where I'm going now with the task. And that's what I've been working on in my lab now is developing uh, a new task where there's two animals that learn avoidance together and we can manipulate one of the partner's um, learning experience. So are they naive to the task or have they already learned avoidance? And if they have already learned avoidance, could they transmit some of that information to their partner rat who hasn't learned avoidance yet. And maybe that would help the rat learn more quickly, for example. Um, so what we're finding so far is when the animals are learning avoidance together, um, they actually show an increase in freezing um, during a, the acquisition of avoidance, um, which was very surprising because um, under, under normal circuit, under solo conditions, when the animals are learning avoidance, um, as they begin to avoid more across 10 days, which is how long we train them, their um, freezing starts to decrease. So early in avoidance training, it's kind of like fear conditioning where their, their fear responses are going up because they're getting that shock and they don't, they haven't exactly learned, oh, if I get on the platform, I'll be safe. So that takes a few days. But then towards the end of avoidance training, um, as soon as they hear the tone, they go right to the platform and they really aren't freezing very much at all. But in our social um, avoidance task, uh, we see that at the beginning of each session, they're freezing looks very high. And that seems to be progressing as they keep um, going through this avoidance task. Um, and that was very surprising to us. So we're still trying to figure out what does that mean? Um, and thinking about it more, I've, um, I've thought maybe that, you know, as the animals are undergoing this task every single day for 10 days, and they see that same rat in the other side of the box, they may be associating that other rat with the dangerous context of the avoidance cage. 
so that every time they see the rat, you know, they, they freeze a little because they know uh, that rat might be a cue of, you know, the tone is going to come on, I'm going to get a shock. And so when they see the rat at the beginning of each session, they're like, ah, and they kind of freeze a little bit. So that's what we think it might mean. Yeah, maybe the fear is spreading between them. Um, that's fairly interesting. So I guess like some short term, you know, what what do you envision scientifically, like, or what do you hope to have accomplished, like in in five years? Not not too long, like um, for, for your for your research program. For my research for well, for me, I for me, I hope that I'm I feel more confident in managing lots of people. Because <laughs> right now I only have, I just got my second graduate student um, and I got more undergraduates joining the lab this fall. And um, it's very exciting right now, but you know, as I'm, I'm feeling how this is right now, I, it's, it kind of seems a little overwhelming if I were to have, you know, four graduate students or more than that. Um, so I hope within five years, I'm able to reach that where, you know, if I have three or four graduate students, I feel okay about that. Um, I also hope that, you know, my, my current graduate students are, are moving, are progressing along very well and ready to, you know, move on to the next chapter of their academic life. Um, and just, you know, really my, my, my main goal is to get people excited about neuroscience research. Um, it's really fun to see the undergraduates in the lab and, um, especially if they're really green and they've, you know, never seen, you know, a research lab before and you go in and you show them, oh, these are the boxes we train the rats in. And this is our colony room. These are where we keep our rats. And this is how they look. We have them in a, you know, in a, a reverse light cycle. And they, you know, I was just showing this to some of the stu- some new students this past week and they were just in such awe, you know, like, oh, wow, this is so cool. This is so exciting. You get to work with rats and, you know, do these different tasks with them and see how they react in the tasks. And, um, I think that's really, you know, what, what I like about my job the most is just seeing how excited the students get when they get to do research. And then also how many of them, you know, perform and do so well and they, and they, you know, work really hard and they really want to be here and they, you know, they discover something, um, and that they get to present that. And I just think that's really exciting. So I hope I get to continue doing Sounds that. Sounds like. Sounds like your biggest passion is the mentoring side then, especially mentoring early, um, early trainees, right? Like that, that first research experience and providing that for people. Um, I'm glad that you're in a department with a lot of undergrads then. So hopefully you, you should have the opportunity to do that and make a really big impact in a lot of students' lives. Um, to switch gears a little bit, um, you know, often when we, when we discuss someone's trajectory, it sounds like everything was sort of like perfect, like these led to that and da, 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 da. And like, you know, it's just like easy PC, but we know that things are not easy. Like research and academia are like, uh, well, science is hard. Um, And I'm wondering if you can share a challenge that you've had along the way, even if it's an unresolved challenge. Yeah. Uh, I would say the biggest challenge that I've had to face um, as an assistant professor would be having to, you know, start my lab up in the middle of a pandemic. Um, And on top of that, having my first child um, at the same time. So when we we moved here in August of 2019, um, and uh, I started, you know, setting up some behavior boxes. And I had my first undergraduate student um, a month after I started my lab. 
And so she was helping me set things up and getting the first experiments going. Um, so we were, you know, kind of off to a pretty good start. And there was a few more students that joined. Um, and so I felt like, you know, okay, you know, it's not like overnight, I have, you know, all these animals and all this data, but it's, it's slowly going. And then, you know, the following semester, right in the middle of it, the pandemic hit. And um, we had to shut things down and everyone was scared and um, things were just kind of put on hold. And do you had a grad student at that point or you, were you still alone? I didn't have one at that point, but I had just interviewed one and he was going, he was planning to join that fall. So I had, you know, those plans in mind that he was going to join in the fall. Um, and then I also, you know, was pregnant at the time. And I remember, you know, right in the middle of the pandemic, we had some rats that we had to use and I didn't want any undergrads coming in, you know, and risk getting sick or anything. So I had to run some rats in a quick experiment um, while I was several months pregnant. So I was a little bit tired and stuff. And I was like, well, I got to do this. I got to do this. So I was like sitting there running the rats and um, making sure, you know, I did ha- put them to waste. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, you know, the students couldn't come in. It was really hard to interact with them. We tried to do, you know, some Zoom meetings and, you know, tried to keep that momentum going, but it was really hard. Um, and then there were a lot of students that, you know, had to go back home. And some of those students didn't have internet in their house. So it was hard to, you know, interact with them. Um, and, and then on top of that, the supply chain started getting bad. So I remember trying to order things and they would say, oh, you know, it's going to be an extra few months because we're back ordered and we don't have the supplies. And, you know, at that point I was like, wow, this is really going to slow me down. And I started to get worried. Um, but at the same time, I was like, well, I guess I can focus a little bit on teaching and, you know, I'm going to take a semester off after I have my first child. Um, and hopefully things will be okay. And right when I did that, my graduate student was also starting. So I had to keep in contact with him and just say, all right, you know, read a lot of papers through your maternity. Yes. So read a lot of papers and, you know, focus on your studies and I'll be back in the spring and, you know, we can start ramping things up at that point. Um, and we, we did a little bit of stuff, you know, so we were able to start setting up the social avoidance chambers and get some of our first rats going in there. But it was it was really slow. And that was, you know, it was frustrating because I wanted to um, I wanted to keep up with, you know, my other peers that I was seeing, you know, start their labs up and and getting their things moving. And I kind of felt behind sometimes. And um, but I just kept going. And, you know, despite that, I. I also had some semesters where, you know, undergraduates, they, there weren't many around. They were, you know, still, you know, taking classes from home or didn't want to pile on extra things in their schedule um, as things started opening back up slowly. So we had very limited, you know, people in the lab and then also, you know, limited um, resources as far as like uh, supplies and stuff went. Um, So it was very, very slow. Um, And, it's just, I feel like it's just only now starting to like get more, you know, get, get more momentum. It was this past summer where I actually felt like the students were, you know, interacting in person and, you know, getting that feeling because I also heard from a lot of my students that it was hard to stay motivated in the lab because they would be the only person there running rats and they didn't get to talk to anyone else. And, um, that was also very hard for everyone. It's just that, you know, social isolation. So yeah um it's like challenges left and right not only the shutdown the supplies the isolation of the students plus on top of that maternity leave so you couldn't really be 
um, present and available as your student is starting. So that, that sounds really challenging. Um, thank you for sharing that. So now to end on a more light note, and I forgot to tell you this, so this is going to take you by surprise. Um, tell us, you know, outside of the lab, like, what do you do for fun? Or, you know, to do you have a hobby? Like, uh, or if there's no hobbies, what do you do to stay sane? <laughs> is there something that, you know, describes Maria outside of the lab? Yeah. Before I was a mom, I liked to run a lot. Um, and when I was in graduate school and in my postdoc, I loved to, to trail run. Um, so I would always be signing up for races um, and running with friends. Um, on the weekends in Puerto Rico, we would go to these different locations, um, to run in the mountains. And it was so much fun. Um, and then when I was pregnant, I didn't run as much. It was, um, it was just too hard. I walked a little bit and, and tried to be as active as much as I could. Um, and, and then during the pandemic, it was also really hard because, um, we didn't have childcare for a while and, um, we also don't have family around. So, um, it's really just my husband and me who, you know, kind of basically take turns watching the kid until he started um, daycare. Um, so it took a while for me to get back into running. Um, so I'm, I'm still running a little bit. So I'd like to say that's my, that that's my um, activity that helps me de-stress. Um, but really anything, just getting outside, um, going on a hike or um, taking my son to the zoo. He loves animals. So we like to go to the zoo um, um, and, and gardening too is fun. So that's what I like to do. <laughs> Going to the zoo sounds super fun, especially with a, a toddler. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he loves it. He makes all the, the funny animal sounds and um, it's just, it's fun watching him. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you so much for, for, for sharing your story with us, Maria. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is-